0: following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America, located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. It's a popular saying that you may have heard and I know I've Heard it and used it myself on a number of occasions. It goes something like this, the night is always darkest just before the dawn. The night is always darkest just before the dawn. The idea is that when your life seems to be about as bad as it possibly could be, then relief must be coming. It can't get any worse. In the darkness of deepest night, after hours of impenetrable gloom, the sun must be just below the horizon about to break into a new day. That's the picture that's used in that phrase. Well, have you ever felt the weight of life's difficulties and thought, surely, surely things just have to get better? They have to. You might just as well say to yourself in those moments, the night is darkest just before the dawn. There's a ring of truth to this little saying. There's something hopeful and encouraging about it. And there's also something profoundly biblical about it, which is really no surprise since it came into print at, uh, by the pen of an English pastor about 400 years ago, which I didn't realize until I looked up the phrase this past week in preparation for this sermon. See, oppressive darkness giving way to glorious daybreak, humiliation, giving way to exaltation. It's a pattern that we see again and again in the narrative of Scripture. When God's people are faced with seemingly unbeatable trials and difficulties, they are then delivered, but not through some impersonal, physical inevitability like a sunrise, but rather through divine intervention, the loving care of a Father who's watching over them. Consider just a few examples drawn from the Old Testament. Right at the very beginning, Adam and Eve, they've plunged themselves into sin and shame. And who comes and clothes them? God does. As the rain begins to fall and the fountains of the deep burst wide open, Noah and his family are kept safe in the ark, which God had told them to build. And then who closes the door behind them? Well, it must have been God. After righteous Job, as we've been studying, had everything taken from him, flocks, possessions, even children, certainly dignity and a good name among his neighbors, God shows up. We're not there yet in the sermon series, but it's coming. God showed up and restored him and vindicated him and his name, giving him honor, health, and wholeness in even greater measure than he had before. When Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our fathers, sojourned among potentially hostile and dangerous neighbors in the promised land, they were kept safe at all times by God the Lord. When the Israelites came up out of Egypt only to be caught between Pharaoh's army behind them and the Red Sea in front of them, what happens? God split the sea, he split the waters, standing them up like a heap so that then they could walk through on dry ground by the hand of Moses. And then moving forward, when Joshua and the judges and then the kings of Israel faced seemingly impossible odds against the Philistines and other great powers of their day, who repeatedly rose to their defense, we're told it was God who rose to their defense. And in that famous account, which I love to read out of First Kings 18, when Elijah, the prophet of God, goes up against uh, the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, who had been called together by King Ahab, one man against hundreds of false prophets, what happened? He was vindicated by God. God delivered him. When Daniel and his friends, and Esther and Mordecai, and Ezra and Nehemiah were threatened by mighty political opponents in Babylon, and then in Persia, and back in Canaan, who delivered them out of exile and persecution? God did. Well, in our text this morning, the opening verses of Micah chapter 5, God both condemns the sin of his people, but also promises to deliver his faithful remnant out of devastation and distress. We see the pattern renewed for us. This divine promise of deliverance is fulfilled in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, even as is made plain in Matthew chapter 2, where we read of his infancy narrative. And we can see that as well from the opening chapters of Luke's gospel, where our meditation was drawn from this morning. Indeed, the incarnation of God the Son realizes all of Israel's hopes for salvation. No matter how heavy the darkness of sin had become, no matter how oppressive that darkness weighed upon God's people, the light of God's salvation in Christ infinitely outweighs it. The light is heavier, more holy, more glorious than the darkness. We can and should draw strength then from the fact that God's purposes for the good of his people are far greater than the intimidation and distress of sin. Um, in us and around us. And so from our text this morning, we shall see that when distressed by sin's devastation, Christians must look to their Savior for grace. When distressed by sin's devastation, sinners must look to their Savior for peace in His grace. We will consider this lesson under two headings. The devastation of sin in verse 1 and then the promise of peace in verses 2 through the first half of verse 5. Again, the devastation of sin in verse 1 and then the promise of peace in the remainder of our passage. Notice how verse 1 divides into three distinct phrases here. Now, muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. They have laid siege against us. With a rod they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. These three statements, helpfully uh, broken up um, into lines in our Bibles, in the New American Standard, and even set off with semicolons, uh, give us three features of the devastation of sin. Sin's devastating character, sin's devastating condition, but also sin's devastating consequence. What is sin's devastating character that we're given here in the first phrase? Namely, that sin is trouble. Micah gives us two textual clues in verse 1's opening phrase to show us that there's no way around it. Sin's devastating character is that it is a trouble to us. The first word now uh, directs our attention back to chapter 4 verses 9 and 10 where God announces the punishment for sin, the devastation of exile to Babylon. Notice in verse 9 also begins with now. Now Why do you cry out loudly? Is there no king among you? Or has your counselor perished that agony has gripped you like a woman in childbirth? Writhe and labor to give birth, daughter of Zion, like a woman in childbirth. For now you will go out of the city, dwell in the field, and go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies." Notice, God's message doesn't stop with an announcement of punishment in uh, chapter 4, verse 9. But rather, he, he gives a simile to flesh out what the character of that punishment is, what the character of this, of this sin uh, punishment that they have. He gives a simile of uh, the agony or travailing of childbirth. And in short, what he's showing us here is that sin is trouble. It's agonizing trouble. And we see that that daughter of Zion, who's, who's in this agony, is also the daughter of rebellious troops uh, that Micah returns to in chapter 5, verse 1. And this one is gripped with agony, like a woman in childbirth. You know, boys and men, we have no idea. We will never know what that agony is like. But those of us who have been there to witness the delivery of a child know that the word agony is very appropriate this is the picture that god gave micah to use to describe sin's devastating character sin is trouble it is agonizing trouble are you convinced of that do you do you know that to be the case you know, we take a lot of measures to avoid getting into trouble to avoid experiencing agony or discomfort or even just inconvenience. But but what precautions do you take to avoid sin, to avoid the agony of sin? Are you convinced in your heart that it is such an agonizing trouble that you should take precautions to avoid it? Can you name even one thing that you do each day specifically to keep yourself out of the trouble of sin, if we can put it that way? If you can't think of something that you do uh, toward that end of protecting yourself from the trouble of sin, then ask yourself, do I truly know sin's devastating character? Do I know that sin really is trouble indeed? Do you yet understand that sin is not merely something that inconveniences you or disadvantages you? No, it's... It is rebellion against a holy God. That's why Micah uses this phrase, uh, daughter of troops, those who gather together to rebel against God, even within his holy city. You know, in addressing the people of Jerusalem as the collective daughter of troops, he's openly rebuking them then for their sinful rebellion against this holy God. He's ringing an alarm bell over their idolatrous injustice, which united them into a troop, into a group of covenant breakers in opposition to God himself. Micah's words, they perhaps would have stung the ears of his hearers, but as Proverbs 27, 5, and 6 tell us, "...better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy." And so we understand Micah's prophetic alarm over sin's devastating character as an urgent expression of God's care for his people to warn them, not only of sin's devastating character, but, as we'll see in the next phrase, also of sin's devastating condition. They have laid siege against us. The people of Jerusalem, or Micah, was ministering would become uncomfortably familiar with the realities of a siege and of siege warfare. And we should notice that Micah includes himself with them in this distress of theirs. He doesn't say against you, he says against us. He's identifying with them as a good pastor would, as, as a faithful member of the community. He too was familiar with what it is he's describing, even as he pronounces to them God's message of warning and judgment. In the middle of Micah's ministry in 722 BC, uh, the northern kingdom Israel falls to the mighty Assyrian Empire. And, and what is the situation uh, in which they fall? Well, there's a siege of their capital city, Samaria. Uh, Micah knows all about that. We don't know exactly when Micah 5.1 was written, if it was before or after that siege uh, took place. But certainly in his lifetime, he would have seen that happen, heard reports of the horrors of siege warfare. And so too would all the people of Jerusalem. In the southern kingdom, in Judah, where Micah lived... The Assyrians would come up against Jerusalem in a siege, but then would be turned back by the glorious deliverance of God's mighty hand for his people. Nonetheless, the terror, the threat of siege warfare were pressing realities in the lives of Micah's original hearers. This is something they were very familiar with. Today, we don't really worry about siege warfare. We don't expect to see... um, Siege towers and battering rams show up on our front door. We don't live in royal cities with moats and and metal gates and and tall, thick walls. But how would you feel if you knew that someone out there somewhere was casing your home, was targeting it to break in and to do you harm? Uh, Would that change how you live? Would that change the condition of your life, even day to day? Wouldn't you want to escape? from that threat of danger. If you know someone's out there wanting to hurt you, you want to get away from them. Uh, some some of you, really just two of you here today, are very familiar, you would remember a long time ago when the threat of nuclear war with the Soviet Union was a real threat, was a pressing threat. And how did that affect your life? You had to do drills and, and, and identify places you would go in case there was a bombing or something like that. You know, We don't live in that condition anymore but you know what it's like to somehow in some small measure be under siege as a nation and certainly if any of us had that sense of a threat either personally or nationally our whole lives would be changed that's the devastating condition of sin it's it's ever at our doorstep not only is it trouble an agonizing trouble but it's all consuming terribly brutal trouble like a siege Sin includes two things, doesn't it, according to our catechism? Transgression of God's law and any want of conformity unto God's law. Uh, transgression of God's law gets us into trouble certainly but the want of conformity unto God's law uh, though it can be understood in a specific instance is really uh, or or should be understood as more of this condition that persists over time it's something that keeps us in trouble as long as you're out of alignment with God's law you're you're running up against trouble again and again and again and this want of conformity is a condition that affects every aspect of our being and of our lives by nature. One important aspect of the preacher's task, we see it here in Micah's words, is to proclaim the danger and the distress of sin to his hearers such that they would then recognize just how urgent their situation is, uh, how urgent their need for deliverance is, how thick the darkness is before the dawn. And any faithful presentation of God's law includes the always difficult conclusion: then, that we don't live up to it. In fact, we cannot live up to God's perfect standard of holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, as Paul tells us in Romans three twenty-three. Boys and girls, do you have this verse memorized yet? If not, you should. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Or in Romans six. Uh, All have sinned, and the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Well, the results of sin are deathly serious, aren't they? Micah gives us one more feature here of the devastation of sin to flesh out the picture. He gives us in this final clause the consequences of sin. With a rod, they, namely those who have laid siege, will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. This is a prediction about what the result of the siege shall be. It will be sin's devastating consequence. Mike has shown us that sin is trouble, that sin is brutal, all-consuming trouble. And now he shows us that it does indeed have dire consequences. The description of sin's devastating consequence here is that of a serious insult and dishonor to the representative leader of the nation. For a conquering king to come into a city that he's conquered and then to strike his conquered foe in the face, it's the height of both personal insult and political subjugation. This is about the worst thing he could do in front of everybody to shame the king that he's conquered. And the judge of Israel here, I'm so glad the New American Standard translates Shofat as judge, because that's properly what it is. The judge here is standing in for all those leaders in Jerusalem and in Judah that Micah in earlier chapters had called out as unjust, as perverting the administration of justice in Judah and in Jerusalem. Indeed, they have not judged rightly. And so they shall be judged, God is telling them through Micah. The Babylonians, and they lay siege to Jerusalem not even 140 years after the Assyrians take over Israel uh, in the north in 586 BC. In other words, judgment deferred is not the same as judgment revoked. What Micah is telling the people of Jerusalem 140 years before uh, they themselves would face. Their city-ending siege is without repentance and forgiveness of sins, uh, these sins of rampant injustice that they've been committing. The people of Micah's day were faced with inevitable judgment for their covenant-breaking rebellion against God's righteous rule. This is not a natural process, but rather it is a very personal process, that they too shall be judged My friends, particularly boys and girls, but each one of us should consider this. If you're here today, you're harboring sin in your heart and you're not dealing with it. You're you're trying to hide it from God. You're not bringing it to the Lord and seeking for Him to uh, cleanse your defilement, to forgive your sins, to pardon you. Uh, Well, then heed this warning. Judgment is coming. Some of you children... No, a song about the kings of Judah and Israel. And what's the repeated line after the end of the names of the kings of Israel? God did punish a bad nation with a worse one. A worse one. God did punish a bad nation with a worse one. Indeed, that's what happened in the siege. That's what happened in the striking of the judge of Israel on the cheek. It's the punishment of God's people for breaking the covenant which God had made with them. While at Judgment Day, Christ himself will come to judge the living and the dead, to separate covenant keepers from covenant breakers. And he gives this description of the great separation in Matthew 25. And in that chapter, much like Micah's prophetic utterances uh, throughout his book, Jesus highlights considerations of biblical justice of keeping God's law, of doing unto others what we would have them to do unto us. And all those who fail to uphold God's perfect standard of justice will be liable to judgment apart from Christ. This is sin's devastating consequence pictured for us in this verse. With a rod they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. We're confronted this morning with a vivid one-verse description of the devastation of sin in these three aspects. It's devastating character, it's devastating condition, and it's devastating consequence. But the emphasis of our passage is not that of judgment and woe. Rather, uh, this verse here in chapter 5, verse 1, it introduces a glorious promise of peace in verses 2 and following. This is not the first time that Micah will follow a passage of judgment with a passage of promised grace, but this is the first time in his book that such a pairing will be so heavily imbalanced in favor of God's promised grace. His earlier couplets of judgment and grace are typically more equal in length between the two parts. This is the first time we have one verse followed by several verses highlighting the promise. The promise of peace with which we're concerned here is found in Christ alone. That's no surprise to us. Certainly that's why we gather to be reminded of this, that the Son of God who set aside the outward manifestations of His heavenly glory and took to Himself a human nature is indeed Christ Jesus who suffered, bled, and died for the salvation of sinners, that we might not taste the devastation described in Micah's prophecy, but rather enjoy eternal delight in Him. Indeed, our Savior was smitten, stricken, and afflicted, even struck on the back and upon the cheeks, as we're told in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. And because he absorbed in himself the devastation due to our sin that Isaiah describes and that Micah describes for us, we can then enjoy communion with God through the forgiveness of sins today. We'll examine the promise of peace then expressed in these verses in three parts pieces origin pieces action and pieces identity pieces origin action and identity verse 2 gives us a statement of pieces origin and God's covenant promise to the historical King David, which promise itself, as we see in the same verse, is grounded in eternity past. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Notice these two dimensions that were given here in the first place uh, the promise God makes in verse 2 is in connection with a very specific place Bethlehem Ephrathah Bethlehem of Judah as we see in Matthew chapter 2 this was King David's Bethlehem uh, which uh, the the advisors of King Herod had identified as the the promised birthplace of the Messiah it's a surprising little village but very historically significant hometown for a king The covenant promise that God made to King David, what was it? We sang about it in our setting of Psalm 89. That promise was to build for David an everlasting royal house or an eternal dynasty that would never fail to have one of David's descendants sitting on the throne. The historical accounts of that promise are found in 2 Samuel 7 and also in 1 Chronicles 17. But Psalm 89, which we sang, reiterates that promise in the context of devastation. The devastation of sin, judgment, and exile, which is detailed in book 3 of the Psalter going into book 4. We read in Psalm 89, 34-37 of God's irrevocable covenant promise in the face of sin's devastation. Namely, my covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, God says, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful. What a promise that God makes to David. The promise of peace finds its historical origin then, as Micah is pointing out, in God's royal covenant with David, whom God anointed with holy oil to be king and ruler over his people Israel. But how can God make this eternal promise to a human, earthly king? And this is where the second dimension of verse 2 comes into play. The promised ruler who shall come forth is himself eternal. Uh, His goings forth are from long ago, which might refer to the promise uh, to David in the covenant, but from the days of eternity... Well, that's clearly speaking about the person of this promised king. Peace's origin is not only covenantal in time and space, but it's eternal in the decree and essence of God Almighty. From the days of eternity. This is confirmed uh, for us by Isaiah, which is Micah's peer. They ministered around the same time. And Isaiah's description and titles for this same figure, this same promised Messiah, in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, speaking of Christ, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal or Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, that's the name that God uh, gives Himself to David, and David refers to God again and again as the Lord of hosts, will accomplish this. The covenantal, the eternal dimensions of peace's origin, they they combine to secure then for us as God's people an unshakable confidence in God's promise of peace. There's no turning back the eternal promises and purposes of our everlasting God. They're not impersonal. They are in in a comforting and covenantal sense, however, inevitable. There's no stopping them. And when you struggle with creeping doubts and anxieties due to sin in your life and its devastation around us, when you begin to pay heed perhaps to Satan's lie that God could not possibly love a sinner like you, or that the trials that you are facing must be signs of divine rejection and condemnation, then what is your recourse Meditate on the covenant promises of our eternally faithful God. He does not change. You know, you and I are fickle and changeable creatures. We fall into sin daily, perhaps hourly, in thought, word, and deed. But God is immovable, He's steady. He's steadfast in his loving kindness. He is secure in his grace to us in Christ. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. It was Vos who said something like, uh, God will never stop loving you because he never began loving you. He always did. It's who he is. And so this promise of peace, rooted as it is in his eternal decree in being, it is steadfast, steady, and immovable. It is secure. Having established peace's origin, we can now move on to peace's action. We'll go through this quickly. Verses 3 and 4, they're full of activity. Look at them with me in your text. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she, is, when she who is in labor has borne a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel, and he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. We can break down the action in these two verses into seven progressive movements. First, Micah again describes the punishment of God's covenant-breaking people in terms of giving up into exile. This is that devastating consequence of sin threatened in God's covenant with Israel, recorded at the end of Deuteronomy, and then echoed again and again, not just in Micah, but in all the prophets when they speak of judgment for sin. And Micah is very good at reminding his hearers of God's righteous judgment, even as he's applying consolation from God's steadfast purpose to save. He's keeping in front of them uh, the sin for which they need to be saved. And that's where the second movement comes in. As we return to the labor and delivery room to witness the happy conclusion to the distress of giving birth. Mothers, I know that you can relate to this. Uh, This picture that's in our text. The distress of delivering a baby. That distress which your husbands and your sons will never know. It's almost immediately overshadowed by that first embrace that you have with your little one. The joy... That fills the room which just moments before perhaps had been filled with with screams and agony and trial and distress. And so by this image of that bearing a son, Micah brings the birth scene from chapter 4 verses 9 and 10 to a happy, even a peaceful conclusion. And this should call to mind as well the travailing of Mary bringing forth the Savior of the world uh, to us. But the picture we have is like a page out of a coloring book. And uh, the next five movements, they color in that picture of peace, that happy conclusion that we're given. In the third movement, Micah predicts the return of the sons of Israel as the remnant of the promised rulers departed brethren. Uh, Micah never uses, not once in his whole prophecy, the word uh, for covenant, but he uses a lot of covenantal language throughout his prophecy. And we see that right here in the combination of these terms, remainder, return, uh, sons of Israel. They call to mind God's covenant with his people, much like the vocabulary of our worship services that we use, of a call to worship and benediction and assurance of pardon and hymn of response and, and these different things that we do together in our services, Micah's prophecy describes a renewal of relationship, of communion between God and his people. This relationship is then further defined in the fourth and fifth movements as the promised ruler arises or stands uh, in order to shepherd, literally to feed his flock. This promised ruler, he's described as a good shepherd, committed to caring for his sheep, for he's identified with Israel's God, the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, as he does so. He rules in the strength of Jehovah and the majesty and the name of Jehovah, his God. And so the end result of this good shepherd's rule and reign then is expressed in the sixth and seventh movements. The people shall remain or abide secure in his care. Because his greatness will extend, literally, he will be great in one Hebrew word, even to the ends of the earth. In other words, Israel's enemies will be just as subject to his sovereign rule as Israel is. Which means, what for Israel? That they will be secure in his care. His care which is irrevocable and immovable. If our passage ended at this point, we could rejoice at our God's great acts of deliverance and demonstrations of His faithfulness, and we should marvel at His mighty deeds of redemption recorded for us in scripture, but that's not where the passage ends this morning. For verses two through four, we've been speaking of the origin and action of a person, and that's where the passage ends. The first verse, our first half of verse five tells us who this person is. This one will be peace, or our peace. This is peace's identity. Not only does he bring peace to his people, but he himself is their peace. He is our peace. There's no peace for men apart from him, for he himself Is peace and peace cannot be found anywhere else. This is precisely Paul's point in Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, where he writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. As you come to the end of another year, what's on your hearts and minds? This holiday season, you might be burdened with grief over lost loved ones, perhaps over broken relationships. It might be seats that are empty at the table for one reason or another when you gather with your families. Uh, Perhaps your mind is occupied with making plans for the new year, Uh, plans of moving into a new house, as some of us are about to do, or plans of finding a new job, perhaps, as others in the congregation are thinking about. Boys and girls, Do you ever wonder what life will be like in the new year? You're going to be growing by leaps and bounds at your age, and all kinds of changes are going to be afoot. What will happen to you and your brothers and your sisters in 2023? These concerns, they can distract us. As important as they are, and we do need to think about them, they can distract us from the promise of peace we have in Jesus Christ. And when we're distracted, when we get forgetful, of God's promise of peace in Christ, we're then vulnerable, we're opened up to attack by the accuser who seeks to remind us of the devastating sin guilt that we bear before the judgment throne of God apart from Christ and His promise of peace. The darkness begins to creep in and and choke out your spiritual vitality as you lose sight of your Savior, as He's obscured from vision. Therefore, whatever else might be occupying your mind, whatever else is on your heart, whatever's clamoring for your attention, mothers and fathers, you absolutely must focus on the one person who gives, indeed, who himself is, man's one true and lasting peace. Just as the sun is man's one true and lasting physical light in this world. When was the last time you woke up before dawn when it was still dark in order to catch a sunrise, perhaps on a morning walk or on vacation at the beach? The sun is in some sense, when it crests over the horizon, both light itself and the source or bringer of light, which casts away darkness across the land. But the sun, it's merely a created thing. It's Its effect on darkness is but a pale reflection of the spiritual realities that we've been considering this morning. Namely, that Christ himself is our peace that casts away all distress, all fear, all anxiety and devastation due to sin. When we're distressed by sin's devastation, Christians must look to their Savior for peace. That was Micah's message to the people of Jerusalem. They need to look and long for, look to the future when the Messiah is coming, deliverance from the Lord. But we, we look back. We look back to Christ and then we look away up to Christ where he's seated in heavenly places and seek for his peace which alone is in him. You know, there's nothing, there's no one, there's nowhere else to look but to Jesus. In the verses following our passage, Micah goes on to describe the effects of peace on the people of Israel. The coming of Christ will bring peace for them in terms of victory over their enemies. In Ephesians 2.14, Paul will pick up on this statement that he himself is our peace, and he'll rightly and powerfully apply it for us to, uh, to the removal of tension between Jewish believers and Greek believers as they're brought together into one community, having been reconciled to each other in Christ, pointing out that this reconciliation between man and man is really only possible because of the reconciliation between God and man, which was Christ's reason for coming in the first place, for he came to take away the iniquity of his people and their sins. In Romans 5.1, Paul declares, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, can you say with confidence this morning, the end of this year, that your sins have been pardoned? Can you say that you have been declared righteous before the judgment throne of God? Can you say that you are justified through faith in Christ, that you have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ? If there's anything that Christ's miraculous And prophesied coming demonstrates to us it is that there is no other way to experience the divine blessings of joy everlasting but in and through him. God has made no other provision for us but Jesus Christ and he is enough. Have you caught yourself going after other remedies? Have you caught yourself trying to keep the law? To, to make God happy with you? Have you trusted in your own works? Or perhaps maybe people-pleasing to try to get people to like you? Or pleasure-seeking to, to distract yourself from the pain that you feel over sin? These will not bring you peace. They will not bring you life. They'll only bring you heartache, bitterness, and spiritual death and desolation. That's Micah's point. Peace is promised in Christ alone, for he alone is our peace. And God in Christ shall be glorified as the only Savior of sinners, indeed. This is a glorious message of Micah's prophecy. It's a glorious message of Matthew's gospel. It's a glorious message of our text this morning in just four and a half verses. And this is the essence of the gospel message which impels us to gather Lord's day by Lord's day, to sit under the word read and preached, to go out to the highways and the byways, to compel men to come in, to hear of this message of salvation, this glorious gospel of grace and peace, to ponder the mysteries of God together and individually, and to celebrate our Good Shepherd's blessed presence in our midst as He stands among us, and as His name is made great even to the ends of the earth. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we ask that as it has been Your pleasure to stand firm to Your covenant promises and to show us favor through all seasons, culminating in the appearance of Christ, the everlasting Redeemer of all nations, we ask that You might continue to grant us the joy of this same protecting and providing favor this day. Though we have in various ways provoked your wrath against us, yet we pray that you would so humble us that you might sustain us by your word and may guide us to live according to those promises which we find in Scripture, that we may at length overcome our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and possess our souls in honor until that day when you shall send forth your invincible might and your glory in Christ, your only begotten Son, who shall utterly destroy the devil and his servants and preserve us safe and secure from all harm for all eternity. We pray all this in his blessed name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit antiochpca.com.